Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, brother, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, It may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. This is the word of the Lord. You be seated. Well, I want to invite you to bow your heads and let's pray before we dive into this. Father, we are grateful for your word, for your truth, and we're especially grateful here today that we have this chance to gather together as brothers and sisters under you at your table. Uh, And we're thankful for the church and continue to pray that you will give us a vision of who you want us to be with one another and in this world. We're thankful for each one who is here today, uh, for your hand in their life. We thank you for the fact that as we gather, we gather in your presence and we recognize that we come unworthy and that it is only because of what you have done that we can be here, that we can be before you. So, We pray for the soul of who we are as a congregation to continue to be fashioned according to your will and to your heart. And we pray that each one who is here today might recognize their unique place in this body. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to start off by reading a short excerpt from actually the book that our women are using in the Tuesday morning women's Bible study. It's a book that I've referenced several times before. It's called Faithful Presence. It's by a guy named Dave Fitch, and he happens to be someone who's been rather instrumental 
uh, in my life for a variety of reasons I'll talk about in a second. But I just want to read, he writes this on uh, the early part of the book. He says, I remember one time sitting with my discipleship group in McDonald's early one morning. We were talking about our recent vacations, and I mentioned that I tried to make it, I tried to, make it to the Eucharist even when I'm staying in desolate cottage country in rural Canada. This often means I must go to the local Roman Catholic Church. They all wondered why. It's vacation, after all. I said that tending to Christ's presence at the Eucharist, even when I can't participate as a non-Catholic, reorients me to Christ's presence and trains me to tend to Christ's presence in the rest of my week. The discipline orders my life in profound ways. I would no sooner miss it than I would any other necessary task for living, like eating and sleeping. One of my friends said, you believe in that hocus-pocus? That, of course, saddened me. But more to the point, it reminded me of just how big the gap is between many Christians and the real presence of Jesus Christ at the table and in our everyday lives. Thus, I committed to leading, to leading better at the table in my own pastoral work. A few years ago, I was sitting in a class with the guy who wrote those words. He was teaching the class. And when he told that story, I basically missed everything else he said on that given day because I was so taken by his priority on the Lord's Supper. He organized his vacation so he could be at the Lord's table. I just had never heard anyone talk like that. And the moment he shared the story, I realized that I did not have such respect for the Lord's Supper. He believed something about the table that I didn't know, and I certainly did not believe. And ever since then, I've been on a bit of a journey for myself personally, and uh, unfortunately, sometimes the journeys I go on, you go too. And so we've been on a bit of a journey as well as a church. A couple questions. Is Dave Fitch exaggerating the point? Is he taking things just a little bit too far? I mean, doesn't he need to chill out a bit? He's on vacation after all. It's time to relax. You don't need to be doing this stuff. Or is the Lord's Supper, the table, is it that significant? A common criticism of the spiritual formation emphasis and focus and discussion and words about spiritual formation is that it's hard to access and it is difficult to know what it is we're supposed to do in order to make spiritual formation real and in order to make progress in spiritual formation. Well, Dave Fitch is fairly bold and crystal clear about it. Celebrating the Lord's table, according to him, is a crucial spiritual formation practice or disciplines for individuals and for a congregation. It is an essential exercise in the journey to becoming Christ-like. Something powerful and transformative happens when we come to the table. The redemption story is retold. We encounter the living presence of Christ, the resurrected presence of Christ. Somehow, some way, we encounter Him at the table. Our identity, individually, more importantly, our identity as a community is reaffirmed at the table. And through the table, a space gets made, a space gets opened up, as Fitch puts it, for reconciliation and forgiveness 
to happen in our relationships, both the relationships we have with others here and relationships with people outside of here. And the table is a reminder of God's heart for mission. Think about what the table is. It's an invitation to come and feast. It's a reminder of God's heart for mission, and it demonstrates His way of mission. And so we believe the table is central to our life together as a congregation. Now, we're a Baptist church. That may surprise, shock, and disappoint some of you, but we're a Baptist church. We're part of the North American Baptist denomination, proud members of said denomination. And typically, we Baptists have merely a symbolic understanding of the table. What do I mean by that? What I mean is the table is a place to remember what Jesus did when he suffered and died and rose again. So the bread symbolizes his body and the juice symbolizes his blood. So at the table, we thank him for what he has done, which is why communion is also sometimes called the Eucharist, a Greek word meaning thanksgiving. And we believe everything I just said. Our liturgy includes, every time we go through it, the command of Jesus at the Last Supper, do this in remembrance of me. Words taken straight out of 1 Corinthians 11 that Manuel read a moment ago. But we also believe the table is a place to encounter the living presence of Jesus. So it is more than symbol. Something transformative happens when we come to the table because we encounter Jesus. And that's why we say unequivocally, what happens at the table is in fact reality. Because He's with us in the celebration, and we are with Him, and life is never more real than we are attending to His presence. So today is week four of our Formed in Worship series, where we're talking about what we do when we gather together as a worshiping community on Sunday morning. And for most of church history, the Lord's Supper has been the undisputed centerpiece of Christian worship. For most of church history, the table has been at the center of what the community does when it gathers. Now, we celebrate communion on the first weekend of the month which is next weekend. And so we're talking about it a week early so that this week we can prepare ourselves for the Lord's table we will celebrate together next weekend. See, if we had a PowerPoint presentation on Tuesday of this week or an exam on Thursday or a volleyball game on Wednesday night, we would spend some time this week preparing for it. We'd spend some time practicing And so this is preparation week as we get ready next weekend to come to the table. We think the Lord's Supper is that big of a deal. We have been learning this together and continuing to learn together how important the table is in shaping us as a community, especially in light of the contentious and divided world we currently inhabit. So today I want to talk about the kind of community we become through the practice of the table. First of all, at the table, we are formed as a submissive community. Now, very few people like the word submissive. Some of you are bristling, I can tell. It's a loaded word in today's culture. I I realize it. It evokes images of misused power, abuse, and weakness. Untold damage, we all know this, 
has been done to women in the name of religious submission. Crosses all different religions. Untold damage has been done by religious people in the name of religion by wielding this idea of submission over women. It's been used to manipulate women. It's been used to control women. And it has contributed indeed to the mistreatment of women in our society and in other societies. And we obviously want nothing to do with that distortion or with that sin. So it may sound odd to hear that the table, the communion table, forms us as a submissive community. So let me be clear on this. We celebrate the Lord's table as people who choose to live our lives in submission to Jesus, our Lord and our King, and in submission to each other. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Six times in the scripture reading Manuel read from 1 Corinthians 11, Paul uses the term Lord to refer to Jesus. Lord Jesus, the Lord's Supper, the body of the Lord, and the blood of the Lord. It means master, ruler, king. And at the table, we remember that it is his table. We are guests at his table. He is Lord. We are his servants. We live for him. We listen to him. We organize our lives around him. We submit to him. At the table then, we proclaim Jesus is our Lord. It's part of what is happening when we come to celebrate communion. We are saying Jesus is our Lord. It is a countercultural statement in a world where people want to be masters of their own houses and rulers of their own lives. Now remember, one of the powerful symbols of the Lord's Supper is the table. And a table is a centerpiece of a family. It's where the family gathers at least once or twice a week. At least it used to be. Maybe it gathers once or twice a month. It doesn't matter. You get the point. It's where love is expressed through food and conversation and relationship. It happens at a table in a family. It's where family business happens. Hey, we need to talk about such and such. It's where laughter happens. It's where stories get told. And at the table, there's greater mutuality in the family. The field kind of gets leveled at the table. The roles of life, in other words, and the hierarchy of life fade away, and we're simply with one another as a family. So this submission is rooted in love and in adoration and in mutuality. Submission to God, we declare together, submission to each other. The table shapes us into a submissive community as we gather together as people devoted to Jesus to boldly declare He is our Lord. Maybe there's a better way to say this. We come to the table and remember that our fundamental identity is as His people, as His followers, as His beloved. All week long, as you know, we are influenced to find our identity in the various roles we fulfill as employee, boss, husband, student, friend, mother, daughter, son, athlete, all these titles, all these labels. The table reshapes our identity in Christ. 
So there is a reordering, a reshuffling, a reprioritizing that happens when we come to the table. We are not what we do, and we remember this at the table. We are not the master of our own lives, for he is our Lord, Jesus. We are his people. We submit to his leadership and to his guidance. And here's the thing that we may not like. We submit to one another. We learn how to do this. We organize our lives and our values and our relationships according to his wisdom. It's a pretty profound thing. Think of it this way. The table is a wake-up call that snaps us out of the hypnotic trance we tend to fall into each week as we grind through the obligations of life and fulfill our various roles. The table is a wake-up call. It's the alarm. It's a buzzer going, wait a minute. It's not about you. You aren't king. You aren't Lord. And you aren't alone. The table is a wake-up call reminding us of who we actually are and of what reality actually is. The table is reality. This guy Rodney Clapp, one of these smart people, wrote a great book called A Peculiar People. We're going to actually be playing with this uh, in our next series. But this is what he says. It's on the screen. By Christian confession, our most fundamental identity is not that of Americans. It is that of Christ's disciples. So our most important culture is the church. Our most important cultural activity is the liturgy. In the liturgy, day to day and week to week, we do the world as God means it to be done. This means that in worship, we vigorously enflesh a restored and recreated world. A world returned to its genuine normality through holy abnormality. In a civic and cultural form, a public, powerful, visible, political form that challenges and stands in contrast to all other cultures. Worship is not simply world-changing, it is world-making. Now, sidebar, this is the kind of thing that's going to be in that app, because who can possibly digest that? Just put it up, take it down, oh yeah, I got that one. So that's the kind of thing that we'll put out there that you can kind of look at, and there'll be a link to that book to jump out there. But he nails it. Our identity, most fundamentally, is as Christ's disciples, and we submit to him. Secondly, the table forms us as an equal community. Few things over the last five years have burned holes in me as this has. Corinth was a big city, a metropolis, Bustling with activity, full of temptation, lots of vices to dabble in and idols to worship. It was a pagan culture, and the values of the culture were infecting the church in the city of Corinth. The hierarchical power scale of the culture in particular, with its emphasis on status, was influencing the church. So the Corinthian church was experiencing division, and there was tension Sound familiar? And Paul addresses this in the first couple chapters of the book, and he references the division and the tension throughout the rest of the book. There were factions and quarrels around status and prestige in the culture of the Corinthian church. Debates about which leader was better, Paul or Apollos. There was a spirit of arrogance in the church. People were jockeying for position. The values of the culture were shaping 
the culture of the church. The way of the culture was seeping into the church and impacting how the Corinthian church approached and celebrated the Lord's table. So the Apostle Paul, to put it mildly, lays into them, or if you prefer, cracks their heads open. He says in our scripture reading, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. Now, when the first Christians gathered together for their time of worship, they would almost always eat an actual meal together. And sometime during the meal, during the gathering, uh, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so the meal, a real meal, was part of the gathering, and within that meal, somehow they would acknowledge and celebrate the Lord's Supper. In the city of Corinth, the divisions, or in the church in Corinth, the divisions in society were now spilling over into the church. The Corinthians, so they would gather together as a church, and the rich people in the church were eating the food that they brought and drinking the wine they brought, but they were ignoring the poor people in the church who didn't have food to bring and didn't have wine to drink. Now, the text doesn't say this, but the logical implication is that the church would gather together and the rich would sit over here and gorge themselves and the poor would sit over here and listen to their stomachs growl. And the poor just would look at the rich and the rich would look at the poor, but there was no togetherness. And so the divisions and the distinctions of the society had spilled over and contaminated the church. The haves were over here, define it however you want. The have-nots were over there, define it however you want. And Paul does kind of a hello McFly thing on the church, because this shouldn't be. Because in the church, at the Lord's table, as Paul says, and this is a quote, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. This is a communal thing. These distinctions that the culture says are to keep you separate, they are eliminated by Jesus who brings you, invites you, and seats you at his table. So he is teaching them the following. He's teaching them the church itself is to be a culture. A community of Jesus' people who gather and remember and proclaim his sacrifice and at his table everyone across the board is equal. The status markers of society, every last one of them crumbles and all the divisions go away at the table. So the Lord's Supper celebrates the countercultural reality, that word again, of the kingdom of God. The table manifests and displays the upside-down ethic of the kingdom, which is actually right-side-up. And it's why we call it reality. The upside-down ethic of the kingdom is right-side-up. And that's why we say, well, this is reality. This is the way it is supposed to be. The table is the way it is supposed to be. Because in God's ethic, all are invited. Status doesn't matter. That's how it's supposed to be. That's reality. The church is a culture. And its intention is to manifest that reality where status doesn't matter. 
Now, this is interesting to me, probably will be boring to some of you. I strongly urge you to take a power nap, if indeed you're in the board category. But in a typical first century Roman banquet, rich and privileged men would invite other rich and privileged men to an evening of food and drink and conversation about important subjects, again in the delusion that men think they're going to solve all the problems of the world. The servants would serve. The women, if they came, would gather in a different area. The children might be with the women or maybe yet in a whole other area, and the poor would not even be invited. This was an exclusive gathering, a Roman banquet. It's like a country club where if you don't have a membership, you can't just walk in and take a seat and order food. They'll kick you out because you don't belong. And at a Roman banquet, each man who was there had been invited, and each man sat at the table according to their status and power. Where a person or where one of the men sat in relation to the host, in other words, how close they were to the host, reflected the pecking order of importance. The closer one was to the host, the more important they were. So Roman banquets were organized around an ethic of privilege and status and power and exclusivity. And everyone in the first century understood this. And the Last Supper and the subsequent Lord's Supper was, in a way, certainly patterned after uh, the Passover and central in the Passover, but it was patterned after a Roman banquet. Except, and it's a big except, at Jesus' table, he demonstrated a whole new way. The ethic of the kingdom of God was all over the Lord's table. Think about it. In John chapter 13, the Last Supper, the host of the meal, the one who invited everybody, Jesus gets up and washes the feet of all the guests. Wait a minute. That's what we get servants for. They're supposed to do You don't do that. At the Last Supper, the guests, they were all ordinary dudes. They weren't the elite. There's no, well, you're here because you do that. There's none of that. And included at the table at the Last Supper was a guy who in the moment was in the middle of a conspiracy to kill Jesus. And Jesus knew this. But he invites them to his table. After he washes their feet, he says to them in John 13, Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher, and here's that word, Lord. And rightly so. For this is what I am. Not that I, your, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Think Roman banquet. The host. And here's the host saying, I've set you an example of how it is to be. And I just simply say, wow. Now, what makes this a wow is the upside down culture-shattering power of the table. Now, some of you right now may be losing focus and starting to worry. This is a sidebar. You're worried we're going to have a foot washing. (laughs) And you're thinking about your great escape. 
don't worry, we're not going to have a foot washing. You're safe, at least today. But at the table, don't miss this. Jesus turns the ethic of the culture upside down. At his table, we snap out of the trance of thinking that all these titles and roles and privileges and status markers make any difference whatsoever, and we wake back up to reality. Alan Street, another smart guy, in a book called Subversive Meals, if anyone wanted to know what the kingdom of God was like, all they had to do was attend a Christian communal banquet. There they would encounter an alternative way of life where all people, regardless of the status assigned to them by Rome, participated fully as equals in the meal. Around the meal tables, around the meal table, believers forged a new identity as being in Christ. As such, they were now being fashioned into a new body politic which represented the kingdom of God. I do not know if we can even begin to grasp how shocking this was in a culture where status was everything. It's shocking in our own culture, as I'm sure you know. At Jesus' table that we celebrate, the guests, the invited ones, are all sinners. Every last one of them. Some are rich, others poor. There are young, old, male, female, powerful, weak, black, white, Asian, Indian, Middle Eastern, able-bodied, less abled, educated, not so educated. All are invited to feast together at Jesus' table. The status distinctions are all gone. Everyone is equal. And this is so crucial to the soul of Oak Hills Church. The church is to be an example of a different way of being and relating and connecting. The politics of the church, that is, the way it's governed, the way people relate to each other, the way we see one another, and the way we see those who are not part of us, the way we lead, the way we follow, all of it is upside down from the way the culture does it. And the way we're supposed to do it is what God calls reality. We're to show the world reality. And Jesus and his kingdom and the way that all works is reality. And the table shapes us by forming us into people who no longer use the status markers of culture to evaluate and critique and categorize ourselves, one another, or other people. So even though we're blacks and whites and male and female and white collar and blue collar and rich and poor and able and less abled and Republicans and Democrats and liberals and conservatives and conservatives and liberals and Democrats and Republicans and old and young, at his table, we remember we are equal in Christ. See, we need the worship of the table. You don't need me to tell you this. We need the worship of the table because right now we live in a fractured and divided society that does not know how to be with one another without screaming at one another. Divided over all sorts of issues. The anger and the contempt and the fractions are everywhere. And I hope this enthralls you. The church and a church on mission is a church that is bearing witness to what Jesus can do in a group of people who don't see things the same way.
And he will do that if he's allowed to. He brings different people together to the absolute level ground of his table, and there they stand as equals, sinners who have been and continue to be rescued and transformed. And this is why one of our highest values at Oak Hills is to be a congregation comprised of different kinds of people. A community of difference. E-N-T-S. Difference. Different races, ages, educations, abilities, colors, genders, pasts, economic status. All welcome. All invited to be in Christ at his table. We value difference. Last. Third way the table shapes us is it shapes us into a forgiving community. The words we say in our liturgy each communion Sunday come straight from Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, He's just rebuked the, the Corinthians for the distinctions and the separations between them. And he says in verses 23 to 26, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Let me insert, My body was broken for you. It was offered as a sacrifice for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, his blood was shed for us. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. He took bread, he took the cup, he gave thanks, and he gave it to them. And when we come to the table, we remember Jesus' sacrificial love for us demonstrated through his death on the cross. We remember we have received grace and forgiveness from God himself. And we come to the table to experience again the death and resurrection of Jesus, to enter into the story one more time where we remember who he is. We remember what he's done for us in forgiving our sins and ushering us into his kingdom. See, the way we celebrate communion, and what I mean by that is the method we employ, how we do it, is intended to emphasize what God has done. You see, communion is to be received, not to be taken. You hear people say sometimes, I'm going to take communion. And I get it, you know, in some ways just a word. But no, you're going to receive communion because it's going to be given to you because the whole deal was given to you because God is gracious and loving and you deserve none of it. But he gives it to all of us freely. So we get up out of our seats here and we go to the table to receive the bread in the cup. See, the ideal posture for us is to open our hands and have someone put the bread and the cup into our hand so we receive it rather than reaching in and taking it. But of course, health concerns and germs and flesh-eating microbes and all the rest of it make that rather challenging these days, and I get it. I think I get it. Anyway, at the table, we receive his love. We receive his grace. We receive his forgiveness. And what happens at the table is not supposed to stay at the table. What happens at the table is supposed to flow through us 
to others, having received we are to give. So let me be real specific. The forgiveness we have received from Jesus and we remember and rehearse at the table is to flow out from us into our lives and into the lives of those who have done us wrong. Again, the table is reality. By shaping us in here, it shapes us to live out there. The table is a place of reconciliation, our reconciliation with God. And as the love and grace and forgiveness we have received flows through us to one another, our reconciliation with each other and with those anywhere who have harmed us. The forgiveness we have received from Jesus is what we are to give to others. The table doesn't obviously instantly eliminate the pain we experience from whoever, but when we begin to understand the reality of the table, we're shaped into people who have a posture and an inclination and a desire to forgive as we have been forgiven. See, we're missing the reality of the table when we file forward to receive God's forgiveness, but we continue to harbor bitterness and anger toward other people, and we refuse to give them what God has given us. It is astonishing how compartmentalized we can be. Such willing recipients of God's inexhaustible grace, but such stingy dispensers of grace. So grateful, Eucharist, for what God has done for us through Jesus. So incurably bitter about what someone else has done to us. Do you see how this breaks down? Jesus says in Matthew 6:14, "For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins." Our annual elder board retreat was the last couple of days, and I thought they were coming back this morning, but there's about four of them here, so apparently they either got up earlier came back late last night, doesn't matter. But one of the things we talked about at length, and I want you to know this, because I want you to know this isn't me just flying solo. One of the things we discussed at length was the importance of the table in who we are as a congregation and as a community. We had long discussions about the table because it matters. And in the world we live in now, though it shouldn't be driven by this, the world we live in now, this matters even more. And you know, one of the questions that pops up is if it matters so much and so important, why don't we do it once a month? And all my response to that is, please don't get me started on that because then we'll never get out of here. But something that continues to stir in me about these gatherings we have is the ministry we have to one another when our eyes and ears are open. Almost done. So just hang in there for a second. The ministry you have to the people near you and around you that you interact with when your eyes and ears are open. The way God moves among us when we gather with eyes and ears open. The things God can do when we gather together and focus on something other than what we are getting out of the gathering. And the table compels all this. The table stirs all this up. The table, we attend to the presence of Jesus And then we turn and see a brother or a sister who we just sense is hurting. And we don't see it as, oh, they look lonely. We see it as, God, are you asking me to move? Are you asking me to minister here? 
The table stirs all this and compels all this because it is a profound reminder of his presence with us when we gather and transforming things happen when we're attentive to his presence. So, simple last word, prepare for the table next weekend. Prepare yourself to come to the table next weekend as we celebrate his table. I'm hoping that this app is up and running sooner than late this week. I'm hoping it's up and running early this week. But there's a number of things I would suggest you do. You might want to jot one or two of these down. If the app is up, all of these will be in the app in this note section Manuel was talking about. Well, one thing you can do is read Luke 22, 7 through 38. I don't mean 60 seconds before you jump in the car and drive over here. But, you know, maybe on a Tuesday, maybe on a Thursday, maybe two days. Read Luke 22, 7 through 38. Read John 13, where Jesus gets up from the table and washes the feet of his disciples. Here's a question to think about this week as you prepare for the table. Who have I not forgiven? What person in my life do I have bitterness toward? I'm not asking you to pretend that you don't. I'm asking you to just think about who you have not forgiven. Or maybe just a simple prayer throughout the week. Meet me at the table next weekend. Meet us at the table next weekend, Jesus. Do something in our midst. Here's one other one. If you have children, how about a family conversation about the Lord's table and how important it is in shaping individuals, in shaping your family and the culture of your family, and in shaping the culture of the church. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are so good to us and uh, such mysteries beyond our ability to explain or understand. And yet we're thankful for the example, the teaching of Scripture, the truths that uh, are there for us to ponder. And we continue to pray as a church that your spirit will knit us together, that we will be who you've called us to be. And most especially in the midst of the fracture and the brokenness, the screaming and the yelling, the out-of-control anger, the division, the distinctions, the war that is happening within our own country between people who are all citizens, that we might as a church in our little neck of the woods stand as an example of what can happen when different people who love Christ come together under him and allow his way to shape the way they are with one another. We pray for that, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for being here. There's a bunch of food in the back. Say hello to someone on your way.